Our sermon text is from Colossians. I'm going to read not just our sermon text in verses 9 to 14, but I'm going to start back in verse 1 for context. So listen carefully to God's infallible word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened by, with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity, the privilege of being able to open your word to hear it and to study it because in doing so we are hearing from you, straight from you and and growing in our knowledge of you. And so accomplish that in us this morning, this Lord's Day, as we meditate on this text, as we meditate on Paul's prayer for the Christians in Colossae. As we do so, teach us to pray. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Pastor Bobby just experienced the the empty feeling that I experienced a couple weeks ago when I was praying on the first Sunday in the new year, and I said, coming into 2014, and did not realize what I said, but the person on the far left and the person on the far right and a lot of people in the middle were, were, were giggling and snickering and, and the main thing in common was me. So I knew it had something to do with something I said, but not knowing what is, is kind of, I, I always just hope in those moments that it's not heretical. <laughs> that's, that's the main thing that I'm hoping for. <clears throat> Well, how do your prayers compare to Paul's prayers? 
That's a rough way to start a sermon, isn't it? Over the last month and a half, we've been looking at Paul's priorities in prayer. And so how do they compare to your priorities in prayer? Does the content of your petitions reflect the content of Paul's? It's fruitful to ask ourselves questions like this because the New Testament actually tells us a lot about what Paul prayed for. Often our prayers are filled up with with requests for things like good health, traveling mercies, vocational accomplishments or success. And, And these are the concerns that frequently occupy pride of place in our prayers. What do we see, though, when we look at Paul's prayers? We find that they are filled up and overflowing with requests for things like the knowledge of God's will, spiritual wisdom and understanding, a life pleasing, fully pleasing, Paul says, to the Lord, fruit-bearing, good works. We find him asking God to give believers an increase in spiritual knowledge, spiritual strength and power according to his glorious might, for endurance, patience, joy, and thanksgiving. And that's just what we find here in Colossians 1, 9 to 14, our passage today, which is only one of Paul's prayers. How much of this, just this, just this one paragraph do we find in our prayers? Now, of course, it's, it is not wrong at all to pray for temporal needs like successful surgery or healing or safe trip or a job that provides. In fact, it's not only not wrong, it's good and right to bring all of our needs, all of our struggles to God. I'm always encouraged when I get to 3 John uh, where, where the apostle prays toward the beginning of that letter, that short letter, that it may go well with Gaius in every way physically as well as spiritually. 3 John verse 2 says, I pray that you may be in good health, even as it goes well with your soul. So it's appropriate to pray for bodily health, physical well-being, in addition to spiritual well-being, spiritual health. That's not the issue. The issue is one of priorities. It's vital that matters related to our eternal souls occupy pride of place rather than matters related to this life only. And so before we walk through Paul's prayer in Colossians 1, 9 to 14, consider, reflect on the priorities in your prayer life. What makes up the bulk of your prayers, your petitions, temporal matters or eternal spiritual matters? Do you request spiritual growth, as Paul does here, as much as you request comfort, safety, security, happiness, health? And when you ask God for temporal blessings, an appropriate thing to do, when you do it, to what end do you make those requests? For what purpose do you want God's physical, temporal blessings. 
And in addition to your prayers for relief from suffering, do you ask God for the endurance, character, and hope that suffering produces? Romans 5, 3 to 5. Those are the questions, the hard questions, that Paul's prayers force us to ask ourselves. And we'll work today through, uh, through our text on the handout, making four observations about Paul's prayers. We'll see first that Paul prays for believers he's never met. That's, that's sort of the context here in, in verses 1 to 8. And then second, Paul prays unceasingly. Third, Paul prays that God will fill believers with the knowledge of his will. And finally, Paul prays that believers will be fully pleasing to Jesus, will fully please their Lord. So number one, Paul prays for believers he's never met. This is instructive for us. He writes in verse 9, From the day we heard, heard about you, heard about your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you. And so what is it that Paul's heard? Well, in verses 3 to 8 in particular, Paul says that uh, he had heard about their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for the saints. That's a summary of what he has heard. And he's only heard about the Colossian Christians. He's not been with them. He's not been there yet. He's not seen them, met them personally. He didn't plant this congregation. A lot of the, congreg- a lot of the congregations he's writing to, he, he did plant, but uh, not the one in Colossae. And it, we don't know for sure. It, it, it was evidently founded, planted by Epaphras, who gets mentioned up in verse 7 here in Colossians 1. So we can't say for sure that Epaphras planted the church, but we do know from this text that he was a shepherd, Maybe, maybe the shepherd of the believers in Colossae. <clears throat> Although Paul had never visited these Christians, he assures them that he's praying for them. He, he's added them to his prayer list. And they can rest assured that he will not stop praying for them. That's what he's saying. He prays diligently, unceasingly, for people he doesn't even know. Personally, he's never met. Is, is our praying this broad, this extensive? How much of, of your praying extends beyond your, your own family or your own small circle? Now, again, we need to qualify here a little. Our, our, our primary responsibility is our own circle, the one that God has put us in, in his providence. That's where we must start, with our own people. If, if we don't pray for the spiritual well-being of our own, who will, right? But if our prayers never extend beyond that, our, our small circle, we've become too inward, too inwardly focused, too introverted, too caught up in our own world. Our prayers may at times be an index of of how, how small and maybe self-absorbed our world has become. And it's a, good, it's a good habit to pray for Christians in other parts of the world that you don't know. Every month, Julie sends out a, a prayer list of 
persecuted Christians throughout the world that you can pray for every day. There are other resources that, especially today in, in this age, there are tons of resources to help us know about and pray for things going on in the broader church. And so it's good for us to get outside of ourselves and our tight circles, not least when we go before the throne of grace in prayer. So that's the first point. Paul prays for Christians he's never met, and so should we. Number two, Paul prays, he says, unceasingly. We're still in the first part of verse 9. From the day we heard about it, we have not ceased praying for you. So what's it mean to pray unceasingly? It, it doesn't mean to pray literally nonstop every second of, of the day offering up petitions to God. When Paul says that he prays unceasingly, he's not saying that he, he's, he's praying while he does other tasks, although he could do that. Uh, he's not saying that he's learned how to pray in his sleep or something like that. What he's saying here is that he prays regularly. He maintains set times for prayer. And in all of those times of prayer, he intercedes for other believers, for these believers in particular, in Colossae. Paul, Paul says something similar. He writes something similar in Romans 1, verses 9 and 10. He says, I mention you always in my prayers without ceasing. So he never ceases mentioning them in his prayers when he goes to prayer. And so if you pray for someone without ceasing, you pray for them regular, regularly during your regular times of prayer. And this assumes that we have regular times of prayer. Last week, uh, actually for a couple weeks in Sunday school and, and one of the previous sermons in this series, we, we talked about that need for set times of prayer. The Old Testament people of God prayed three times a day, evening, morning, and at midday. And since we've discussed some of that already, I want to make another point of application here. There are, there are some things <clears throat> that we should pray for always, that we should always regularly, routinely, repeatedly be praying for. <clears throat> there are basic spiritual needs that we need to keep asking God for over and over every day without ceasing. The, need, the, the needs never go away. It's, these prayers are never out of season. Your times of prayer should be built on a foundation of general prayers. Right? We, we, we should ask God for all kinds of specific things, too. But the found, your, your, your prayer time should have a foundation of, we could say, nonspecific or general, broad prayers that you offer up to God on behalf of other believers again and again and again. And Paul lays down for you this foundation of general requests on which to build your prayers. That's, that's really what this prayer is. 
And why is this important? Why did Paul think it important to make these broad, general prayers for a church body, for a, a, a community of believers that he had never met? How was this, was this really worth his time? Well, yes, and here is why. And we talked about this in Sunday school, too. Prayer is the means that God uses for giving to his people the blessings that are already theirs in Christ, that he's already promised them in Christ. Prayer is the means that God uses for giving to his people the blessings that he wants to give them, that, that they have coming in Christ. Prayer is the, is the instrument of God's blessings for believers that God gives us. It's an instrument that God has given us to use. And so I wonder how, how different things might look if, if a church, a, a local congregation, a family, if Christ the King Church prayed regularly for one another using these general prayers for basic spiritual needs in verses 9 to 14. What, what if we made these you know, non-specific requests, the foundation of our prayers for our children, for one another, for persecuted Christians? What if we incorporated this prayer into our set times of prayer? In other words, to get a little bit more concrete, what if, what if the foundation of your prayers for others was that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding? so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, that they might bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God, that they might be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, that they might learn to give thanks to the Father for delivering them from the domain of darkness and transferring them into the, dark, into the kingdom of light. What if, what if these general petitions in the middle of Colossians 1 formed the bedrock of your prayers, of our prayers? How might this transform our community, our hearts? These are the spiritual needs that every Christian needs again and again and again. Daily, hourly moment by moment. They're, they're what all the people here, the, all the people sitting around you and including you need tomorrow and the next day and even the rest of today and next week. These were the things that Paul asked for, he says, unceasingly. So Paul prays for believers he's never met. He prays unceasingly for the spiritual basics. Now, let's get into some of the, the content in, in our third point. Paul prays that God will fill believers with the knowledge of his will. Look at the second half of verse 9. We've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What, what's Paul mean by the knowledge of God's will? 
He wants Christians to be filled with this, this thing that he calls the knowledge of God's will. What is it, though? How do I get it? How do I find, how do I discover what God's will is? When we use the expression, God's will, or God's will for my life, we're often, we're often referring to God's will for some, maybe some decision that we need to make, some course that we need to take or not take, but we have to make a decision about it. And we want to know God's will for where, where to go, how to, how to navigate it. We want to know God's will, where should I live? Uh, what, what, which job should I take? Should I take this one this, that's been offered? Uh, where, where should I go to college? Who, should, who, do, who do I marry? Do I buy this car? Th- those kind of life decisions, some more important than others. And again, we need to affirm that it's good to seek God's will in all of those things. In fact, I, I can give testimony to how the Lord has graciously guided me and, and Brandy in, in life decisions, in, in, answers, in answer to prayer. And we should not despise the Lord's kindness in those moments, in those answered prayers. We should give thanks for it. At the same time, if God's will for important life decisions is the extent of my thinking about what God's will is, then I'm in danger of making God's will something that is primarily about my interests rather than God's. You see how that might work. The will of God then becomes something that is is about my future, my vocation, my needs, my life. This me-centered perspective tends to eclipse from view the dominant ways in which the Bible speaks of the will of the Lord. Listen to how Psalm 143, verse 10, talks about God's will. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. Teach me to do your will. Notice that the psalmist isn't, he doesn't ask God to reveal his will, show me your will. He doesn't say that. Not, you know, teach me to discern your will. Show me what you want me to do, God, so that I can do it. He, he says in this verse, Psalm 143.10, teach me to do your will. And so he's not, in this prayer at least, he's not hoping to find God's will in prayer. It's already known. It's already been revealed to him. In, in, in Scripture, the will of God is not primarily a, a secret as it pertains to us, as it's really. And so when we, when we think about God's will and doing God's will, we, we know there are things that God has decided and, and things that he's decreed and things that he wills that we don't know. But when we think about God's will, we're called to focus on the things that we do know. It's not a secret, in other words, what God's will is. It's, it's not primarily a future mystery. 
It's been revealed in the Bible. And so the difficult question is not, what is God's will for my life? The much harder question to answer is, am I willing and ready to do God's will for my life? More important than asking God to reveal his will to you is asking God to help you do his will that he's already revealed to you in his word. That's the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 143. Not reveal your will to me, God, but help me to do what you've already shown me to be your will. Paul, Paul speaks of God's will in several places throughout his letters. In 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm going to give you two examples from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, sort of kind of back-to-back places that you can go and study this if you want. But in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says directly, this is God's will, your holiness or your sanctification, as some translations put it. The will of God for your life is that you be holy, in other words. That you make progress in sanctification and in, in spiritual growth. And in context, Paul is speaking primarily about sexual purity. But it, it, it applies beyond that as well. Then, so, so this is God's will, your holiness. That's a direct quote from 1 Thessalonians 4, your sanctification. Then a chapter later, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, Be joyful always. Okay, number one, be joyful always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's from 1 Thessalonians 5.18, if you're taking notes. So, so from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 alone, we learn that God's will for all believers is that they do four things. This is not a comprehensive list. This is just a list from two chapters of the Bible. One, be holy. Two, be joyful always. Three, pray without ceasing. Four, give thanks in all circumstances. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Really just two verses. Now, if a person doesn't desire to to pursue the will of God that's already been revealed in his word, what business does that person have seeking God's will for life decisions? On the other hand, to put it more positively, God promises that if you pursue his revealed will, the will that he's made known to you in Scripture, then his unrevealed will for important decisions will be added unto you, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and everything else you need will be given to you at the right time. Matthew 6.33. Let me draw your attention to the very end of verse 9. It says, In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul's prayer is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God, uh, knowledge of God's will, in all wisdom, all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What Paul means here is that... 
I hope you don't miss this. This is an important point. What Paul means here is that knowledge of God's will, will consists of spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom and understanding are what the knowledge of God's will is. It's the substance. Now, the word spiritual here refers to the Holy Spirit. The more Holy Spirit, we could paraphrase it, Holy Spirit wisdom. The more Holy Spirit wisdom and understanding you have, the more you know of God's will. So, so where do Holy Spirit wisdom and understanding come from? What's their source? Well, they come from Jesus and his spirit. They come from knowing Jesus and walking in his spirit. And how do you get to know Jesus and walk in his spirit? By praying in the spirit without ceasing and by saturating your soul in God's word, the word of Christ. The church, this church, our church, every church, the world, needs Christians who live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of God's mouth, that proceeds from God's mouth. We, we need men and women and boys and girls who hunger and thirst for God's word, who meditate on God's word day and night, who desperately depend on God's word as their lifeline. That's why this passage from Paul should be part of our regular foundational prayers for the saints. Few things are more urgent in the church than a deep knowledge of God's will that he has revealed to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. So, Paul prays for believers he's never met. He prays unceasingly for those believers. In particular, he, pray, he prays uh, regularly for their general, most basic spiritual needs. He asks God to fill believers with the knowledge of his will. Now, number four, we've come to the last observation. Paul prays that believers might fully please Jesus, the Lord. Look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. What's it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him? Well, it's explained, it's fleshed out for us in the rest of verse 10 and then in verses 11 and 12. I'm going to... I'm going to, for those taking notes, I'm going to give you a few subpoints to put under that last point on the outline. Walking in a manner worthy of Jesus, fully pleasing to him, means at least four things. First, it means bearing fruit in every good work. Do you see that in verse 10? Bearing fruit in every good work. That's a direct quote. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that Christians have been saved by grace through faith. And we know that it's grace alone and faith alone that our salvation is not by works at all. Not even a little bit. Your good works contribute nothing 
to your salvation. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But then in the very next verse, Ephesians 2, 10, Paul says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Brothers and sisters, never forget that you were not saved by your good works, but you were saved to do good works. You were not saved by your good works, but you were saved for good works, to do good works that God prepared beforehand. Paul can't imagine anyone being pleasing to Christ apart from being fruitful in good works. People who are fully pleasing to Jesus are people bearing fruit in every good work. Second, being fully pleasing to Jesus means increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what the very end of verse 10 says, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, for Paul, the knowledge of God isn't, it's, it's, it's not primarily about knowing doctrinal facts, theological formulas. Those, those things are important. They have their place. But that's not, that's not at the heart of what Paul's talking about. The, the knowledge of God is an intimate knowledge, a personal knowledge, a personal relationship with God through Jesus. That's, that's the knowledge that, that Paul's talking about here. And, and we need to understand, so Paul's used the word knowledge here a couple times, that the knowledge of God is similar to the knowledge of God's will that we looked at back up in verse 9. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of His will are similar in that both come by means of the Word of God and the Spirit of God revealing to us God Himself and His will. It pleases Jesus when His people grow in the knowledge of God. That's pleasing to your Lord for you to grow in your knowledge of Him, which means to grow in your intimacy with Him, your knowledge of His beauty, His glory, His power, His goodness, His mercy, His character, His nature, His being, His mighty works on your behalf. And so that's, again, why we should regularly ask God to give us, to give his children, to give our brothers and sisters a deeper, scripture-based, spirit-empowered, Christ-centered knowledge of him. Our greatest need is to know God, to know God and to know his will. And so let's ask God for it. Let's ask God for a knowledge of him for one another. So being fully pleasing to Jesus means first bearing fruit in every good work, second increasing in the knowledge of God, third third subpoint under the fourth point there. In verse 11, it means being empowered 
for joyful endurance and patience. Being empowered for joyful endurance and patience. We don't often connect joy and endurance, right? Endurance is something that's difficult that we have to muscle through. But Paul connects joy and endurance. He connects joy to patience. Being strengthened with all power, verse 11 says, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He uses three words there that mean power or strength or might. Uh, Being strengthened, or we could say empowered with all power, according to his glorious might. All right. He's emphasizing the point. That's, That's his way of using an exclamation point. Or, or highlighting it, or underlining it. It's God's power, God's strength, God's might being granted to us for the purpose of endurance and patience with joy. And so, and so we really need to, to think about what's going on in this verse. We, we need to study it carefully. What does God strengthen us with his power and might to do? Why does he strengthen us with his power and might? What's the purpose of the power that God gives? To what end does he strengthen us? According to verse 11, God gives us power not so that we can go out and do flashy things for the kingdom that will make the history books necessarily, but so that we might have endurance and patience. The power that Paul is talking about here and always is is what we could call resurrection power. Power that comes directly from the throne of God by means of the resurrected Christ. Just know that when you're reading the New Testament. In in the New Testament, spiritual power is resurrection power. The power of the resurrected and ascended Lord flowing to you. In other places, Paul connects, makes this more explicit. He, he connects the power that God gives Christians with the power that raised Christ from the dead. And if you want uh, to look at a couple examples of this, you can write down these two passages and look them up later. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, where the power that we receive is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And Colossians 2, 12. As a believer in the resurrected Christ, you have his resurrection power running through you. And this, and this supernatural power, this grace, heavenly grace, produces in you a supernatural gift of joy-filled endurance and patience. Endurance and patience go hand in hand. To endure endure faithfully, you must patiently wait on God. And waiting on God requires endurance. Endurance and patience require spiritual stamina, fortitude, which means they require something that you don't have, power that you don't naturally possess. They require power, strength, might from God. Paul's prayer is that God would give these believers 
the strength they need to endure with patience and to do it, as Hebrews says about our Lord, to do it for the joy that has been set before them, the joy that has been set before us as we take up our cross and follow after Jesus. It pleases Jesus when suffering believers maintain their Christian joy. It pleases Jesus when insulted believers maintain their self-composure and their contentment. So remember to ask God to strengthen the brethren with resurrection power for endurance and patience. Fourth, being pleasing to Jesus means joyfully giving thanks to the Father. That's what the beginning of verse 12 says, giving thanks to the Father. So Paul doesn't just give thanks to the Father for what he has done and is doing in believers. He also prays that believers would learn how to give thanks for what God is doing in them. So this is not just Paul giving thanks. This is Paul asking God to make these believers thankful. And what should Christians be thankful for? Well, a lot of things. Verse, verses 12 to 14, though, provide the core answer to that question. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. A life that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. A life fully pleasing to the Lord begins, must begin, with joyful gratitude for the salvation that you've received from his hand. If you have been delivered from the domain of darkness, if you have been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, then your first and fundamental and continual response should be joy-filled gratitude. Say that again. If, if you have been delivered from darkness, if you've been transferred into the kingdom of God, then your first response, your fundamental response, and your continuous response should be joy-filled gratitude. Paul's exhortation in verses 12 to 14 is that you give thanks for the great salvation that God has accomplished for you and for all of your siblings in the faith, for the whole family of God. Give thanks that when Jesus took up his cross on Calvary, he fought victoriously and defeated the dark domain that once had its grip on you, that once had you in its dark dungeon. On the cross, Jesus silenced the accuser and conquered your greatest enemies, sin and death. In Jesus, you have full redemption. Because of the blood of Jesus, 
Because of the cross of Christ, you have the forgiveness of sins, the greatest gift of all. Give thanks for your redemption and pray that I and all the saints at Christ the King Church will learn to honor Jesus, to please Jesus by giving thanks to the Father for our share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's pray. Oh God, please fill us, the saints of Christ the King Church, with the knowledge of your will and all the wisdom and understanding that comes from the Holy Spirit, that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may imitate him, that we may please him in everything, that we may bear fruit in every good work and increase in our knowledge of you, that we may be strengthened with all resurrection power according to your glorious might for joyful patience and endurance that we may give heartfelt thanks to you, Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. To you, Father, who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, eternal redemption, and forgiveness of sins, and in whose name we pray. Amen.